So Russ, here we are in uh, 2023, and guess what I've got? What do you have? I have the list of the most performed composers of 2022. You want to know who they are? Don't keep me waiting. <laughs> I can see you're <laughs> on the edge of your seat. Anyway, let's start with uh, the most performed contemporary composers of 2022. Once again, this is kind of uh, important too, because uh, for the last two years, they didn't uh, take this data because all the... Um, Concert halls were closed, right, right. so there were no um, live performances of these composers. But the number one um, contemporary composer of 20, most performed contemporary composer of 2022 was Arvo Pärt, the oh. Estonian composer. One of your uh, he was also, uh, yeah, one of my favorites. Actually, a like lot of my too. favorites yeah. come up on these lists. Yeah. Now, Arvo Pärt, he was also the most performed contemporary composer from the years 2012 to 2018. Oh. And uh, there was only one year when he wasn't, and that was 2019. And that was when um, this year's number two composer, John Williams, hit huh. number one. So this year, number John Williams was the second most performed contemporary composer. Number three, John Adams. The Americans are doing okay. really well here. Mm. Okay. John, we like him. Yeah. John Adams. We, we heard a, few, a bit of him on this podcast. Number four, Thomas Addis, British composer. Right. Uh, number five was Philip Glass. Nice to see oh. him still uh, mm. up there. Number six was Jörg Widmann who's a German composer and also a clarinetist and a conductor. And I don't know his music very well. No idea. Number seven is a little surprising. She's a she's a really a challenging composer and a favorite of mine, Sofia Gubaidulina, the Russian composer. And she's, she's very old now, too. She's in her 80s, I'm pretty sure. Number eight, Anna Klein, a British composer. I don't know her music either. Number nine, Wolfgang Rimm, German composer. And number 10, James Macmillan, who, incidentally, I just found out... Um, has a Christmas oratorio, which um, I haven't heard, but these things come to, to mind a little too late. You know, I'm going to have to wait till next year to hear that, I think. Yeah, just yeah, missed it. The Christmas oratorio. There was a recording of that made. Okay, so the most uh, performed overall composers in 2022, you'll be happy to know they're all dead. But <laughs> the first one, my all-time favorite composer is Mozart, and he's number one. Uh, number two is Beethoven. Number three, Bach. Number four, Brahms, my other favorite composer, mm -hmm. Brahms. Number five, Schubert. Number six is Robert Schumann. Number seven, Ravel. How about that? I think it's uh, La Valse is becoming like a big okay. concert mm -hmm. piece. Number eight, Tchaikovsky. Number nine, they just say Strauss. I'm assuming that's Richard Strauss. Right. You know, the orchestral composer, not the waltz guy. And number 10, everybody's favorite, Chopin. No Ranitsky yet, huh? Ranitsky isn't in the top <laughs> 10 yet, but I understand that he's inching closer. Hey, by the way, okay. we got a uh, yeah. message from Daniel. I don't know if you saw it yet or not, but uh, there's some new Ranitsky coming out soon. Oh. Yeah. So okay. next well, month, there you go. it's on the Naxos site. Next month? Oh, well. We'll get him inched yeah, up. Ranitsky, so. Inched up in the top composers uh, list, hopefully soon. Yeah, let's make uh, Ranitsky one of the most performed, uh, although these are some pretty big names. Yeah. I don't know that he's ever going to crack this list. <laughs> there were no surprises in that list at all there. Yeah. Anyway, it'd be nice to see a contemporary composer get in there one day, but, you know. Yeah, I'd like to see Nielsen. Although still going strong, happy there. about that. Yeah, yeah Nielsen would be great. All right. So, uh, so what, what's the name of this uh Yeah, we podcast? are Adult Music. Anyway. The podcast with music for the mature mind. Uh, we do classical and jazz and sometimes some things in between and outside of that realm too. And you're listening to episode 97, getting close to 100, almost there next month. We'll 100. 
yeah. our two-year anniversary and also our 100th episode. So that'll be cause to celebrate. Every week we bring yes, you six albums uh, to discuss. In the episode description, you can see all those links. I put them up for Spotify and Apple Music every week to everything we talk about. Also at the top of the description, there's a link to the full episode playlist. If you want to hear all the music in one spot, you'll have to go to Deezer. That's our favorite CD quality streaming platform. If you don't see the full description or the links or lists aren't active, go over to our host site, Podbean, P-O-D-B-E-A-N.com. You can get everything easy to follow there. Now, if you enjoy the podcast, please follow or subscribe wherever you listen to us. Tell a friend uh, if you have any music friends. Uh, word of mouth gets us some new listeners. Also, if you take a moment to write a review or give us a ranking, that helps us get recommended in the music category recommendations for podcasts and then we get new listeners that way as well. You can also follow us on Facebook. Come over there to get extra info and releases throughout the week, other musical tidbits. You can leave a message or comment there as well. And if you want to contact us directly by email, you can do that too. Any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is adultmusicpodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. Before we get going, uh, there's a few other podcasts that we sharing our audiences with each other. And we've got Tom Gauker's Something Came From Baltimore. It's a jazz blues and R&B interview podcast. We've got famous interviews in neon jazz by Joe Domino. And we've got this other interesting one, Same Difference, Two Jazz Fans, One Jazz Standard, where uh, two guys look at several versions of the same jazz standard each week, play little portions of it, and discuss the history of the original and the different versions. So any uh, jazz musicians and uh, jazz aficionados may find that interesting as well. Anyway, the links for all of those will be at the bottom of the episode description. So if you want to get some more music podcasts in your week, uh, please do check those out. All right. So I guess we should just uh, leap right in here. We're going to uh, take our passports and uh, jump to uh, the Let's old go back world. To the, the old world. The yeah, old world. We don't world. have any American music uh, in this uh, list tonight. Nothing from the Americas. I've got I've got some interesting um, American classical music coming up soon, but you know, mm. gotta gotta wait for them to you know show up or anything. Anyway, I'm gonna start with the old the old country from for me personally with hey. a record called uh, Forza Azzurri. Yeah, we're gonna end up there in jazz today too. So. We're going to end up there in jazz today, yeah. too. So this is like a bookend. Italy. Italy. Okay. Good place to start. Um, music by Dallabaco, Brescianello, Samartini, Vivaldi, and Zavateri. Great names. Boy. Yeah. This is by uh, some artists that are very familiar to us on this podcast. Tabia Debus, or Debus, I think she just calls herself, on the recorder. Uh, the ensemble La Serenissima, conducted by Adrian Chandler. And this is on the Signum Classics label, a British label. La Serenissima, I should mention, they're British. They're an early music and period instrument ensemble, um, which will become pretty obvious when you start listening to them. Founded way back in 1994 by Adrian Chandler, their current director. Mm. Uh, he's been the director really since the beginning. Um, and they specialize in the music of Antonio Vivaldi and his contemporaries. And I think the key thing is to kind of highlight some of the music of his contemporaries alongside Vivaldi's music. And this is interesting, too. Uh, their entire repertoire is edited from manuscript or contemporary sources. We featured their album Settecento way back on episode six, which was uh, Boats, Scooters, Turtlenecks, Music. 
kind of sounds like late <laughs> camera action. That was one of my favorite albums of theirs. I, I still listen to it today. Um, and it had a great album cover. And this one has a so-so album cover. <laughs> I should mention, the album cover is an image of the Madonna statue at Milan Cathedral, not the... Not the Madonna that sang "Lucky Star." This is the uh-huh. the, the the mother of the mother yeah. of Christ, Madonna at Milan Cathedral. She's got a halo of stars around her head, and she's looking heavenward into a nice blue sky. And the photo is taken from below the statue, so it looks like she's rising into the clouds. And the title of the album, "Forza Azzurri," this is pretty funny. Um, this is what you say when you support the uh, Italian national soccer team. And I think this this album came out around October, November. It, it was prepared way before that. So when they decided to release this, I think they were thinking, oh, this would come out, you know, during the World Cup, and they'd have their kind of like, you know, little soccer tie-in, Forza Azzurri, cheering okay. for the, the Italian soccer team. Except that the Italian soccer team didn't qualify for the <laughs> World Cup this year. So they had a little bit of an embarrassment, both not only just for the soccer team, but. Uh, I guess the title of this recording too, it didn't quite, you know, sync up the way they wanted. Oh well. Anyway, it's not really much of a loss because we still have this great music. This album is 82 minutes long. It's very long. Mm. Um, the CD booklet notes by Adrian Chandler are all excellent and demonstrate in a popular style the amount of research that went into preparing these works for recording and performance. So it's a CD worth having if you're interested in the music. So let's start. Let's get into this. Tracks one and two are a piece by Lorenzo Gaetano Zavateri. Introduzione for strings and continuo in G major, opus one, number one. Judging by his output, Zavateri was a violinist first and a composer second. (laughs) 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 That's... He's, he's, he's probably better at playing other people's works. But his published uh, sets of sonatas and concertos show considerable skill. It's not like he's a bad composer or anything, but he's not he's not Vivaldi. Let's just put it that way. This work was probably intended for the theater. It has uh, arresting slow movements and energetic allegros, perfectly designed to quieten a rowdy audience. You really have to think of the um, <laughs> why, when these works were actually performed to really understand them a little bit right. better. So... It starts out Largo Espico, and there's a lot of, um, yeah, this one goes between Largo Espico and Allegro Asai three times, this first movement. Okay, so in this first movement, uh, track one, La Serenissima, our uh, ensemble here. Incidentally, La Serenissima is also the nickname for the city of Venice, who's who's referred to as La Serenissima back in the day when the dojes were there. Uh, They use a strong, bright, aggressively taken attack for this opening dotted rhythm accompaniment at the 42nd mark the main part of the piece begins chugging at a comfortable tempo with a very tactile rhythm Uh, that's due to their attack and the vividness of the recording which is fantastic it picks up the bass really well Um, this is very it's a very vivid recording Mm. Uh, there's an emphatic slamming on at the brakes at a minute and 11 seconds and an (laughs) open cadence at a minute and 30 seconds, after which we get a new bubbly section that recalls much of the music of the period. Sections are very short and are all followed by pauses. At the 2 minute and 18 second mark, there's a sudden lovely melting phrase that moves downward, appearing like an illusion that suddenly dissipates as the more lively material returns. It's an odd movement, which ends on an open cadence that leads into the second movement, the allegro. This starts in a more traditional Baroque way, with its theme being passed around the strings, uh, there's the occasional odd passing harmony, as at about the 22-second mark, 
The clear recording allows all the voices to be clearly heard, especially pleasing in the more polyphonic sections, which don't stick around for long. It's a very brief movement. After that, we're on to Giuseppe Sammartini. Now, this isn't, um, this is a different guy than Giovanni Battista Sammartini. I'm not even sure if they're related, but they might be. <laughs> anyway, this is Giuseppe Sammartini. He's new to me. A concerto for recorder, strings and continuo in F major. And this is where Tabia Debus comes in. Oh, it's his brother, Giovanni Battista Sammartini is his brother. Uh, both brothers were oboists, the sons of French oboist Alexis Sammartin. So Sammartini means the same thing mm. in Italian that Sammartin means in French. Giuseppe worked in Milan, Brussels, and London, which is where he died, in London. This recorder concerto is his best-known work. It's got three movements. The first one, Allegro, track three. I posted a video online, by the way, on Facebook of the ensemble performing this movement on our Facebook site, mm. if you want to see it. Tabia Debus is featured on the recording. I've liked her playing on all of La Serenissima's albums, and here's no different. I kind of knew this was going to be great. The recorder used is a soprano, also known as a descant recorder. Uh, beautiful flowing phrasing here. Debus livens up any attack she plays on. She's well captured on the recording. Her contrasting sound to the strings is very welcome. And at 3 minutes and 23 seconds, uh, she gets a brief cadenza with some subtle bends of tonality adding to expression. Playful and enjoyable. Second movement, Largo, the slow movement, has a typical start, but there's a harsh passing harmony at the 9 second mark that felt so good. And that La Serenissima makes sure we hear by really leaning into it. They give it a little push you know, out of the speakers. This is a technique we'll hear a lot on this album. They really like to draw your attention to these um, odd passing harmonies, which I rather enjoy. The recorder enters at about the one minute mark into the movement. Um, her line matches the lilting Sicilian rhythm employed in the accompaniment with some virtuosic figuration added to her lines. And the third movement, Allegro Assai, lively, bouncing rhythm from the ensemble with the recorder winding a sunny, chirpy theme around the accompaniment in 3-4 rhythm. Uh, Debus has appealing tone and virtuosity throughout. Balance between the recorder and ensemble is good. She stands out when she solos and can be heard with the ensemble when she accompanies, thrown into relief by her timbre, but not her volume. So even though she's quiet, you can easily make her out simply because she's a wind instrument and everybody else is a string instrument. She gets a brief cadenza in the second minute as well. I was really happy to see this man's name on this program, tracks six through eight. Evaristo Felice Dallabaco. This is his concerto number 12 for strings and continuo in D major, opus six. He was a pupil of the violinist uh, Torelli, um, and he joined the Bavarian court of Maximilian II Emmanuel. Maximilian Emmanuel II, I don't know, in, in uh, around 1704. But that year, the Duke of Marlborough defeated Maximilian II Emmanuel at the Battle of Blenheim, and Dallabago fled with Maximilian to Belgium. And after another defeat by that same guy at the Battle of Ramillies in 1706, he went to France. Dallabaco's general style is Italian, as is shown by his concerto, whose energy pays tribute to the concertos of Albinoni and Vivaldi. Movement 1, Allegro. Uh, this work features the strings. The lively rhythms and bounce of the Italian style are on display here, along with virtuosic violin bowing. There's a cadence and pause at about a minute and 50 seconds, after which we launch into the opening material again, or what at least starts out like it. I like the way the bass registers fully throughout the speakers on this recording, really throughout this album, adding depth and presence to the sound. 
The second movement, grave. This seems to be taken more quickly and aggressively than a grave would indicate. You think of it as being serious and slow. It's got a Siciliano rhythm, which is emphasized, and the brief movement has a mournful quality and ends in an open cadence into the next movement, Allegro ma non troppo, which starts with a smooth legato theme in the strings. It picks up in rhythmic vitality as the bowed notes become shorter, throwing the rhythm into relief. Rapid rippling, circling figures, and repeated bowed notes on the downbeats all give the music a sense of propulsion. Energetic performance by an ensemble that one can tell is really enthusiastic about this music. Uh, La Sarinissima's enthusiasm comes through throughout the album. There's a well-taken, gradual, but quick slowing down to reach the final cadence at the end. Finally, we reach uh, the man of the hour, Antonio Vivaldi, tracks 9 through 11. His concerto for violin, strings, and continuo in A major, RV 353. First movement, Allegro, has a bit more room sound on it than the previous tracks. Uh, it's taken at a more leisurely pace than we generally hear, accenting the melodic material and the bounce of the rhythm, punctuated by the staccato bowed notes in the bass. The solo violin is sweet sounding and gets way up into the high range at points. The pacing and feel are different than what we've heard up to now. The violin at about a minute and 55 seconds gets a new solo section in a more thinly orchestrated section of the score. The tutti returns at about uh, 2 minutes and 50 seconds. There's a nice droning bass followed by violin figuration and harmony at the beginning of the third minute. The movement is, in general is charming, bouncy, and unaggressive. Second movement, Andante, the slow movement. The violin plays its theme over an accompaniment, of course, that pulses on beats two, three, and four. The movement pretty much continues in this way with the violin achieving some poignant turns of phrase. And then the third movement, Allegro, has a heavier tread on the rhythm, almost giving it a stately feel. At the 54 second mark, the texture lightens as the violin plays virtuosic figuration. We're back to a tutti at about a minute and 14 seconds. After a cadence at around a minute and 30 seconds, we get violin figuration as the harmony cycles through various keys. The tutti returns afterwards. This movement could be thought of as almost a rondo by the way it progresses. I almost feel like when, I, when I'm talking about all these, there's, there's so many of the tracks on this album. <laughs> I kind of feel like that, that Monty Python uh, routine where they're, they're, they're kind of narrating the, the, the classical movement. Oh, and now the, <laughs> the strings have taken over the, you know. I'm getting close to parody here. I got to get out. Here we go. Tracks 12 to 14, another Vivaldi piece. This one's a concerto for Sopranino recorder, strings and continuo in C major, RV 443. We have Tabia Debus back playing the very high Sopranino recorder. It's really small, yeah. too. Um, this movement has an energetic rhythm to it. The recorder plays a burbling line at 30 seconds, very quick, with some teasing, dipping arpeggiated chords at the end of phrases. Gorgeous tapping on the strings for a mechanical effect from around a minute to a minute and 30 seconds in the accompaniment as the recorder plays quick figuration. And once again, at the two-minute mark, we get a tapping of the brakes as the recorder slows at the end of each phrase. It continues with its figuration afterwards. A cadence and another departure occur at two minutes and 46 seconds, after which the recorder plays a slower phrase, eventually getting back to quick arpeggiated figuration. The second movement is a largo. It's got gloomy legato chords um, laying a bed under the lamenting recorder, which is way in its high range. This mood is kept throughout as the recorder adds quicker notes to her theme. 
And the third movement, Allegro Molto, has a bright, bouncing, Italianate feel to the rhythm. The sopranino recorder plays with them and emerges as the soloist at around the 22nd mark. Her line is full of constant figuration. There are some lovely melodic moments, as in the first minute when the recorder is more exposed, after which the full ensemble comes back. In the second minute, the recorder creates a two-instrument effect, doing a call-and-answer effect with herself, which calls in the high end and answer in the low end of the recorder. Pretty cool. After this, the ensemble brings us to a final cadence. Tracks 15 through 17 are another violin concerto by Vivaldi. This one is a concerto for violin, strings, and continuo in E minor, RV 281? Is that 281? I hope I wrote that right. Yes. Okay. Track one, Allegro. This work starts with the low end, the cello, in the forefront. After the theme, the violins give an answering theme. The speed is rather moderate in this interpretation, again, bringing the melodic material into relief. The violin solo starts just after the one-minute mark. The tutti comes in again, and in the second minute, the violin launches into a more haunting pattern of figuration. And the minor key in this piece contrasts heavily with all of the major key works we've heard up to this point. This has been a very bright energetic major key recording until now and things have darkened a bit we do we have passed through minor keys in the other works but they weren't like the home key until now it adds a bit of dramatic serious edge to the material which is nevertheless very vivaldian second movement largo starts with an interesting rising figure in the bass a lot faster than largo the accompaniment creates a slow pulse in the uh, as the material plays in the upper strings when the violin comes in at the 48-second mark, the texture lightens, and the violin sounds its theme in a melancholy way as gentle pulses continue in the accompanying lower strings. At the end of 2 minutes and 45-second mark, the ensemble suddenly picks up the opening phrase and leads to a cadence. Third movement, Allegro, has controlled cascading strings opening the movement with ominous minor key harmonies in the answering material and the cadence is sounded with a brusque attack. Uh, after this, the violin solo comes in, confident but dark-toned. The piece continues with the tutti coming back at the end, leading to the final cadence. There's not much sunshine in this work, but lots of virtuosity, as you would expect from Vivaldi. And the album ends with tracks 18 through 24, an overture suite for strings and continuo in D major by Giuseppe Antonio Brescianello. And uh, in this particular um, piece, the second violin part was reconstructed by the um, director, Adrian Chandler. Um, Brescianello was not a prolific composer, but his surviving output is of exceedingly high quality. This is according to the booklet notes. It is mostly in the Italian style, but incorporates elements of the French style as well as a thorough harmonic outlook popular amongst the German courts. So he pretty much was a well-traveled man who mm. absorbed everything. This is part of a set of six orchestral suites that Brescianello composed after his employer Eberhard Ludwig, Duke of Württemberg, made a visit to Louis XIV at Versailles shortly before the year 1700. The trip had made a big impression on Eberhard, and perhaps it was this that prompted Brescianello to compose his six orchestral suites in this style. This one is different from the other five in that it ends with a massive chacon rather than a gigue, which is the way a gigue would be a dance, and a chacon is a set of variations. The first movement is an overture and fugue. It starts regally in the slow overture, not quite a French overture, but there are elements of it in there. The dotted rhythm appears occasionally. It's over at a minute and five seconds, then we hear the fugue, 
which is quick in contrast with the overture, as is the expectation of the period. And it's also lively. It's played here with a sense of joy and the sharply delineated rhythm and leaping violin lines. Second movement is an aria played allegro, bubbly, smoothly orchestrated movement with the violins, providing the melodic material in the high end. It's got a dancey quality to it. Third movement is an, another aria, this labeled presto. At about the same time as the previous movement, despite the presto marking, it sounds like the same <laughs> as far as uh, mm. speed goes. It's not as busy, though, and uh, the thematic line's more sharply delineated and less dancey, though still lively. Fourth movement is a rondo. It's in 3-4 time with a widely swaying rhythm, very dance-like in a Baroque manner. The wideness of the rhythm is accentuated by the ensemble. They come down hard on the downbeats to achieve this kind of swaying effect. The fifth movement, bourre, is in dance, another energetic movement, more assertive in its melodic material. Uh, it doesn't change much in its brief one minute and two seconds. The sixth movement is another aria, this one labeled adagio. The first slow movement in the suite, very languidly taken and attractive in its melodic material and harmony. And then we get the chacon. Uh, this is a very long movement for this suite at 7 minutes and 25 seconds. It's almost as long as the rest of the work put together. <laughs> and it goes through a kaleidoscopic set of variations that simply continue one from the other. Uh, this technique makes the movement seem inventive, with constant new ideas springing up for the entire length of the movement. I really was attracted to this. So, beautiful recording, chipper, lively playing throughout, an uplifting, lightly caffeinated album. Uh, with some darker spots toward the end, the E minor concerto of um, Vivaldi. And Tabia Debus is always a welcome addition to the ensemble, breaking up the heavy string sound with the smooth wind sound of the recorder. An invigorating uh, morning listen, I would say. And uh, it's like caffeine for your ears. Really nice. Yeah, that's what I was going to say, morning listening, because I put this one on mm. what would have been last Monday mm. in the morning with my coffee. Yeah. And I really like baroque music in the morning anyway but especially this i've gotten into that myself yeah energetic italian baroque and la serenissima's music i've enjoyed all the recordings i've heard so far and this yeah, one's no too. exception plus a lot of these composers other than the vivaldi and uh actually one of the works of him i haven't heard before so it was a learning experience too but all really enjoyable it's played with flair and with well, that recorder especially it my aging ears, that's almost going out of... <laughs> out of <laughs> the sopranino, maybe. Yeah, the, the, the high, one. high yeah. register that I can hear. But it really cuts through and is uh, quite exciting. Okay. Third movement of the um, Zavateri. Oh, no, I'm sorry. I think that's the Martini. Yeah. yeah, the uh, Allegro oh, Asai. Uh, I thought I was really impressed yeah. with the uh, virtuosity of the recorder playing there. But overall, it's just uh, fun music. As you say, it's, a lot of it is... Uh, more bright major keys. There's a few sort of minor diversions, but La Serenissima's way of playing is just, you can sense the energy uh, bursting through the music all the time. And if, so if you like Baroque music, you can't go wrong with this. And the recording is really clear. You can hear all the instruments really well and the energy just comes right through. So excellent morning listening music. Yeah, so Forza Azzurri, indeed. Hopefully we'll be around for the next World Cup. I think I think that's inevitable because they're going to let 48 teams in next time. One would hope Italy would get into that one. Yeah, jeez. Four years from now. Anyway, maybe we'll still be doing this podcast then. Who knows? 
My personal favorite uh, classical album of the week was uh, this next one. Oh. Mozart, Schumann, Bruch, and Stravinsky, clarinet trios. Clarinet trios aren't something you hear terribly often. Not every day. And I was kind of happy to hear this. Now, what's interesting here, this is uh, performed by the Wigmore soloists, um, Wigmore being Wigmore Hall in London. And this is uh, Michael Collins on the clarinet, Isabel Van Coylen on the uh, violin and the viola, mostly the viola. We'll get to that. And Michael McHale on the piano. And this is a Beast label, SACD. So it's a uh, surround uh, recording if mm. you have that capability. Or DSD also, if you have that capability. One of the reasons I wanted to hear this is because um, we heard Michael Collins last year play the uh, Mozart clarinet concerto and the clarinet quintet, along with a new work, a contemporary work on right. his um, album of those. And uh, Mozart only wrote three chamber works for the clarinet. He kind of got to the instrument late in his life. And this is the third one. So, And it's not recorded that often, and yet it's one of my favorite Mozart pieces of all time. I just love hearing it. It's really relaxed and uh, just kind of carefree. And I just love the whole mood that it has. And I'm speaking of the uh, trio in E-flat major, nicknamed the Kegelstadt Trio, K-498 for clarinet, viola, and piano. Now, that's an odd combination of instruments I should mention, the clarinet and the viola, because you Mm. have a rather new sounding instrument. And then the viola has like a darker sound than the violin. So it's a little out of the ordinary. Now, the nickname for this work, Kegelstadt, is an old German word that means Skittle Alley. And legend has it that Mozart composed this trio while playing a game called Skittles, which was a craze in Vienna that lasted the best part of a century. We don't know if this is true or not, but the idea of Mozart conceiving this enchanting work while simultaneously playing games with a small group of friends is neatly in keeping with its style and character. It sounds very, like, relaxed, and it makes me feel good, too. First movement, Andante, my personal favorite movement, although I love this whole piece. Um, The opening chord is taken quickly with the piano answering. It's a little unusual. Usually that first chord is drawn out, but they just get right to work in this one. The clarinet is recorded close, and we can hear the edge to the breathing and the tone. The viola sounds a bit like a period instrument. Now, I know Van Coylen as a um, violinist, Uh, and she's a soloist too. So here she's accompanying, and she gets a rather odd sound, but an interesting one. At a minute and 10 seconds, I like the lift the piano provides in the accompaniment. The clarinet floats this beautifully carefree melody effortlessly, and my ear is having to adjust for the viola. It doesn't get its usual warm, dark tone, but it's rather thin here. It's not a problem, but takes some adjusting to. She phrases well and makes her presence felt, as do all of the ensemble. It's a very present recorder. All instruments registering strongly in the recording. I do like Van Coylen's turn with the melody at 4 minutes and 25 seconds. Notice in this movement how all of the instruments get a chance to shine with the melodic material. Mozart elegantly passes the theme around. I just love this. It's perfection itself. Second movement is Menuetto and Trio. This has the, uh, the opening has the square sound of a rondo, but it winds up being so much more than that. The piano takes... Not a rondo, maybe a menuet, okay? But it winds up being so much more than just a menuet. The piano takes the bass accompaniment subtly as the clarinet carries most of the melodic material. The middle section features a melody by the clarinet that's answered by busy playing on the viola and chords on the piano. This sounds pretty quick and emphatic. In fact, I've never heard the viola played so emphatically in this work before. It's taking an adjustment from me. Van Coylen is a soloist after all. 
The minuet returns at 4 minutes and 15 seconds, and the movement is taken a bit quickly. The third movement, Rondo Allegretto, has a smooth entry for the Rondo theme. This is the longest of the three movements. The clarinet plays the theme first, then the piano. At the 30-second mark, the theme continues into new territory, after which uh, the piano adds some figuration, which leads us to an open cadence. We hear a repeat of the theme on the clarinet, then more figuration from the piano that leads to a cadence, and then a new theme in the piano at a minute and 45 seconds. I like the clarinet's reedy sound in the accompaniment at 2 minutes and 15 seconds, as the viola has the lead melody. I also love the way Mozart keeps handing the thematic material from instrument to instrument like it's a hot potato. After a departure, we're back to the rondo theme in the viola just after the four-minute mark. I like the melting way the ensemble ends phrases and goes back to the rondo theme, such as at 6 minutes and 42 seconds and just before that. At the 7 minute and 16 second mark, the piano has the rondo theme, and here we head for the end, all beautifully paced, up to the final cadence. Next piece is by Schumann, Robert Schumann, another one of the most performed composers from last year. Märchenzellungen, <laughs> which means fairy tales. It's <laughs> a long word. Oh, it's Märchenzellungen. I hope I said that close to right. Anyway, Opus 132 for clarinet, viola, and piano. This is from 1853. The title means fairy tales, and here also kind of the feeling of a friendly, playful, and at times highly intimate exchange pervades the work. The piece has an integrated key scheme that suggests it belongs together as a single work and is not simply a series of character pieces. We don't have any information on whether Schumann had any particular fairy tales in mind. Evidently, as the booklet notes state, it was more a matter of capturing the elusive moods of the fairy tale as a genre, which really would be a very romantic approach to music. The first movement, Lebhaft nicht so schnell. Upward staccato in the piano as the viola plays a melody, then hands off to the clarinet. Mikhail's playing here is characterful. At a minute and 20 seconds, and onward, Collins is phrasing beautifully with a comforting tone. A sort of climax is reached at 2 minutes and 21 seconds, and we head to the end of this brief movement. The ending chords and material are lovely. Second movement, Lebhaft und sehr markiert. Dramatic opening with heavily accented chords in the piano, which the clarinet and viola pile on. The phrasing consists of heavily accented material followed by rushing answers. This breaks down just before the first minute as we now keep stopping on some harsher chords. The theme is back in the piano at the minute and 20 second mark, however, and we get a more pleasant departure. There's a kind of back and forth theme in the second minute, called and answered between the piano and the other two combined in harmony. The ending is left open and inconclusive. The third movement, Ruhiges Tempo mit Zartem Ausdruck. This is a love duet-like movement. It's uh, gentler with simple configuration for the piano as the clarinet takes the yearning romantic melody and is answered by, I guess, the piano. The material moves into some interesting key areas after the one-minute mark, remaining gentle in articulation. The last minute is all pleasant harmony between the clarinet and viola, who have reached a point of union. The ending is very soothing. And the fourth movement, Lebhaft sehr markiert. 
dotted rhythm in the piano is answered by staccato eighths in the viola first, then the clarinet. This movement has a harder, emphatic quality to it. The piano mainly sticks to the chords and accompaniment as the other two play the melodic material. At about a minute and 30 seconds, there's a quieter middle section in which the clarinet and uh, viola more or less play together. Uh, the piano's rhythm suggesting a dance. After this section, the piano comes in hard at 2 minutes and 38 seconds, shaking us out of the previous section and playing dotted note chords as accompaniment. This time, the piano takes a bit more of the lead with the viola and clarinet on top of his melodies. Nice ending on the lower timbres. Tracks 8 through 11 are by Max Bruch from his Acht Stücke, Opus 83, for clarinet, viola, and piano of 1910. Uh, this was written for uh, Max Brooks clarinetist's son, Max Felix. And we get the, um, this is interesting, we get the final four movements of this eight movement, eight piece work. We get the final four pieces. So movement or piece number five, Rumanische Melody, starts with um, rolled piano chords open, opening the work, followed by the viola really digging into its low end. It sounds almost like a cello here. Um, it's got a deep mm. sound, beautifully captured and drawn out by Van Coylen. The clarinet finally comes in to bring the thematic material further as the viola plays a counter melody and adds some answering phrases to the clarinet. At 2 minutes and 25 seconds, the piano starts an arpeggiated rhythm that starts uh, giving the piece motion, but this quickly becomes a harmonic crisis. At about 2 minutes and 55 seconds, we settle back into something more familiar at 3 minutes and 22 seconds. This leads to a quick crescendo, decrescendo, and some quiet lamenting playing in the fourth minute. The piece ends quietly, but with a sense that the goal hasn't been reached. The sixth movement, uh, Nachtgesang, or Night Song, uh, labeled Andante con Molto, starts with the piano, with a chord and arpeggio-based rhythm. The clarinet takes the theme first, and he plays tenderly. Collins has a really great tone, and it's on full display here. Van Coylen comes in on the viola in the first minute, and she's more lyrical, seemingly more comfortable in the first piece with the viola than in the previous two. The music starts swelling via crescendo to a more romantic sound world in the second minute. In the third minute, we're back to the dark woods type of feel, quiet and mysterious. I'm noticing there are a lot of quick exchanges of material in these pieces that suddenly start up and aren't melted into via any kind of modulation. Notice the triplet rhythm at 4 minutes and 45 seconds and how it suddenly completely disappears by 4 minutes and 55 seconds, for instance. We get more of Collins' fabulous tone at the beginning of the fifth minute as we head for the closing cadence, gently led to and taken. The uh, seventh piece, Allegro Vivace ma non troppo, is quick and scherzo-like. I'm guessing that the ensemble chose these four works because they resemble a sonata, sonata andante scherzo finale type structure. The piano is busy with the bouncing triplet rhythm. Michael Collins of the clarinet really shines here with his tone and virtuosity. He gets a reedy sound when he plays the thematic material and a woodsy, burbling type of sound in his accompaniment. This movement is really all piano and clarinet with the viola along for the ride. And the eighth uh, piece, Moderato, the final one, is a slow opening played by the clarinet and piano, and the phrase is answered by the viola. Again, Van Coylen sounds in her element when she's front and center. The middle section features quick chords from the piano as the clarinet and viola both play the melody. Once the crisis material is resolved at the beginning of the second minute, the music quietens and we get to enjoy the tones of the soloists for a while. 
Then another climax is built to, not quite reached, fallen away from, and the piece ends quietly. Tracks 12 through 16 of the final work, Stravinsky, suite from L'Histoire du Soldat, um, the, the Soldier's Tale, for clarinet, violin, and piano. So here we have uh, Van, Isabel Van Coylen uh, on the violin, which I think is her natural instrument. I've heard her play a lot of concertos, uh, violin concertos in the past. In this piece, the tale, the soldier's tale, contains uh, an awful warning of the dire consequences of, quote, going back. It was composed in 1918 while Stravinsky was living in Lausanne in Switzerland. Uh, the Russian Revolution occurred in 1918 and it would prevent Stravinsky from going back to Russia until 1962. The Soldier's Tale is based on a Russian folk story, which tells of a soldier who sells his soul, which is symbolized by the violin in this story, to the devil in return for limitless wealth. The only condition is that he must never return to his home village, a condition he fails to keep. Uh, there's Russian folk music in this piece, but also a turning toward the new world via jazz-like syncopations mm -hmm. and complex rhythms. Time signatures frequently change, the original piece had a set of musicians poised precariously between a jazz ensemble and a klezmer band. <laughs> it was a clarinet, bassoon, cornet, trombone, violin, double bass, and unpitched percussion. Stravinsky made this concert suite for the Swiss philanthropist Werner Reinhardt, who had helped Stravinsky out financially during the difficult days of World War I. Uh, Reinhardt was apparently a pretty good clarinetist, and uh, judging by the clarinet part in the score, which he would have played... So we have five movements here. The first one is the Marche du Soldat. Uh, these five movements appear in the order that they do in the stage work, so the story's outline can be made out through these five movements. Here the soldier is pictured marching home. And this piece has a rougher edge than the previous three pieces we've heard on this album. Very heavy with rhythm. Again, the clarinet tone is magnificent, especially since Collins is playing in his lower range. Always exciting for me on reed instruments. He also gets some extremely high range lines as well. The piano keeps up a march rhythm throughout with Van Coylen now on the violin, mostly accompanying or doubling the clarinet's line. The second uh, movement, Le Violon du Soldat, uh, portrays the soldier's first encounter with the devil, which will lead to the fatal bargain. I like the violin's sound as it plays its rustic sounding line here over a ticking piano accompaniment. The clarinet eventually comes in with some low range accompaniment. I like the way Stravinsky writes for the violin with his harsh, often low-range double-stop chords taken with a rough attack. He heard a lot of this in his uh, violin concerto, too. We hear a lot of that in this movement. The clarinet gets a moment to play the melodic material in his middle range. Third movement, Petit Concert. Here the soldier appears to have won his violin back. This has more of Stravinsky's fabulous double-stops on the violin with the clarinet getting that bubbling sound I like and playing thematic material in an almost jazzy way. I don't want to leave the pianist Michael McHale out. He's got the task of holding the rhythm together with its often changing time signatures. It's a, a lively, emphatically played movement with appealing timbre all around. The fourth movement uh, is three dances, a tango, a waltz, and a ragtime. Uh, the soldier's playing here restores the uh, sick princess to health in this movement. This tango sounds very sinister on the violin. The piano plays a craggy rhythm with staccato followed by pauses. At a minute in, we can hear the clarinet providing a rhythmic figure in his reedy low end as the violin plays a circling theme. 
At a minute and 52 seconds, the waltz rhythm is heard, interrupted by a straight four rhythm, but fully installed by around the two minute and 20 second mark. The violin here has a lot of cool effects with the bow bouncing off the strings to give a rougher edge. There are also occasional strummed chords in the higher range. The piano keeps the rhythm as the clarinet occasionally comments. Stravinsky's idea of ragtime is more of a deconstructed <laughs> cubist approach. Uh, the ending really doesn't sound anything like we necessarily think of as ragtime, but it does have a popular feel. Uh, the fifth movement, Dance du Diable. The devil knows he'll win in the end, and here we hear him celebrating his forthcoming triumph. Uh, the devil, of course, gets some harsh chords on the piano and violin. The clarinet gets a few good shrieks in, and this short movement ends emphatically. All right, so I thought the uh, playing on this album got better as it went on. I really enjoyed the program a lot. It's very eclectic, starting from the 18th century and ending in the 20th. Michael Collins shines throughout, particularly in the Mozart, where he has a lot of the lead. Uh, Van Coylen shines more in her solo lines. I feel like she was drawing too much attention to herself when she was accompanying in the Mozart, where she doesn't have a lot of solo material. But she gets more chances to be in the spotlight as the program goes on and shows that she can produce a beautiful tone on the viola in the brook, as well as a character for one in Stravinsky. Mikhail is solid throughout. This is an enjoyable listen and a really interesting program. Yeah, I like this one a lot too. And I was thinking the same thing. It's really perfect programming. It's a really enjoyable Mozart work. As you say, it's rather relaxed. Mm. And you go through that. And I noticed too, you know, hearing uh, then the, vi the viola instead of the violin makes a, a different mm. kind of tonal uh, landscape uh, to get used to, but it's nice. And then you get into the Schumann and the Brook, and you've got a lot more of these uh, you know, wonderful melodic themes, more romantic in nature. is not kind of bask in those. Great playing all the way through. Collins' clarinet always sounds wonderful. And then you end up with the Stravinsky. So you get it you know, <laughs> pushed into these modern harmonies. But as far as Stravinsky goes... And these rhythms are, too. Yeah. yeah, these are really mm. rhythmic works. So they're easy to follow. Mm. Uh, so you have you know, some unusual harmonies and things, but they're all done in a real kind of uh, overall playful manner and, and rhythmically organized and you know so they're easy to get through and you know, so it's just a nice flow of works and shows the versatility of the musicians and overall you've got a lot of great tones the clarinet and the mixture of the instruments and the recording is really clean and sounds great as well so it was good to hear some more clarinet and so i was glad to hear collins again on this recording yeah i think that um that mozart clarinet trio it doesn't get enough outings or enough recordings just because of the yeah. presence of the viola you know it's it's, a, it's sort of an odd combination yeah. of instruments the clarinet viola and piano but that's what makes it so appealing so i was yeah. happy to hear that again i've got some great clarinet coming up later too so yeah we got a lot Indeed of clarinet in this episode yeah that's good all right now my third choice i really cheated here i went back <laughs> into, into deep into last year this, this came out in june um, but I've I've been sitting on it for months because I figured, oh, we'll do an Eastern European-themed program. But we never did. So <laughs> I didn't want this to go away. Well, I'm waiting for some of the new classical releases, which actually did come out this weekend. So we'll be hearing some uh, classical music from 2023 very soon. This one is called Estonian Premieres by uh, the Estonian Festival Orchestra conducted by Pavo Yervi. And this is on the Alpha label. 
Now I'd mentioned the uh let's get back to our soccer theme. Um one of the if anybody out there likes saw the World Cup, you might have noticed that Croatia did pretty well. I think they went to the uh they went to the semifinals. And people were remarking about how Croatia has a uh, population that's smaller than Scotland's, and yet they're a world soccer power. And how do they do that with such a small population? Well, Estonia is sort of the same way musically. After the uh, fall of the Soviet Union, the Soviet Union was a, was a pretty musical place. Russia has always been a very musical place. And it's uh, satellite countries as well. But Estonia really emerged as the... Uh, as a real mm. hotbed of uh, where music was going to go or what was going to appeal to people. And, th- of course, Estonian's great composer is Arvo Pärt, our um, current uh, most performed contemporary composer. Anyway, this is a chance to hear some uh, other music from uh, Estonia. And always something I'm interested in because they're just so interesting. There's I, I know a few Estonian composers' music pretty well. Pärt is one of them. There's also... Um, Erkis Ventur, and others as well. I'm relying pretty heavily. This was a... I found this re- these works really hard to describe. <laughs> now, I think in future episodes, like when I'm talking about Mozart, I'm not going to describe the piece anymore. I'm going to make it short. I'm just going to describe the performance. But I feel like in a contemporary work, you want to give the listener a little bit of, you know, what they're in store for. <laughs> so I'm going to attempt to describe these pieces a little bit, well, at least what I'm hearing. I, I found it hard to... Though, because there are a lot of things that are happening at the same time, and they don't really invite themselves into narrative commentary. But anyway, let's take a look at this. The CD booklet notes, which were very, very useful, were written by uh, Nella Eva Steinfield. They really go over the top in the proselytizing for Estonian music. But I mean, you don't have to convince me. I already bought the CD, you know, so <laughs> I don't know what's going on there. Anyway, they are useful, though, she, and she does write some pretty interesting notes here. Although there are. <laughs> There's some funny things in the notes. Anyway, the first um, three tracks are, are a three-movement work by uh, Tenno Kervitz. And uh, he was born in 1969. He's a contemporary composer. It's called To the Moonlight, and it was uh, composed in 2020. This is um, subtitled um, Three Blues for Symphony Orchestra, which <laughs> is an odd title by itself because they don't sound anything like the blues. I don't know. Maybe he's going by a certain feeling that he associates with mm-hmm. the blues. I don't know. This work, in the notes it says, was written during a time when people were forced into solitude. Um, anyone want to guess when that was? <laughs> it was composed in 2020. What were we doing then? Anyway, yeah. another funny thing about the Kedovitz, who's a pretty popular composer. She says that next to Arvo Pert, Erkis Ventur, and Vejo Tormish, Kodovitz is one of the most popular Estonian composers in the world. Just say he's among the most popular. You know, <laughs> you're kind of selling him short here. I don't know. I, I, that, that kind of reading reading the note here kind of made me think of that um, Monty Python routine. You know, what have the Romans ever done for us? And then <laughs> the other guys think about all these different things the Romans have done until it sounds like you can't really do without them. Anyway, so he was one of the most popular Estonian composers uh, behind these other guys. <laughs> anyway. Just say he's one of the most popular. He is. He's, 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 he should be better known uh, worldwide, actually. Anyway, this composition was inspired by Jimmy Webb's song, The Moon is a Harsh Mistress, hence mm. the title, To the Moonlight. How about that? Yeah, hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I wouldn't have uh, picked that up either. Uh, the first movement has a big, warm, sweeping orchestral figure. It's a pretty appealing sound. 
some great low brass at the 42nd mark with chiming arpeggiated tones in the upper end. The overall feel comes across as mysterious and grand by turns. The orchestra writing here is really very good. Uh, there is clarity throughout the thick textures, and of course, Yervi's pacing is exemplary. By the third minute, we're in a quiet section with a lot of sustained brass chords and pizzicato strings. Uh, sections will quickly melt together so that we need to be on our toes to notice these changes. The movement is 5 minutes and 15 seconds long, and there's a lot of material packed into that time frame. Incidentally, I should mention the recording, it's its just big boned. The orchestration is big boned. The recording is very vivid. Um, it, it's thick, and it's just this, this really solid sounding sound picture. The second movement starts with eerie string harmonics over low cello chords. Uh, the material remains mysterious and soft, with some eerie harmonies occasionally peeking through. There's an outdoor quality to this piece and its boldness and grandness. This amorphous material breaks into a slow rhythm propelled by pizzicati in the middle of the second minute, with the winds carrying the thematic material. It's an interesting movement, also beautifully scored. Um, you'll enjoy this if you're interested in the sounds that can be drawn from the orchestra. I'm, I'm the kind of guy, I like to take a nice sound bath, you know, sit in the chair and... <laughs> douse myself in the sounds of the orchestra that's what this felt like mm. the third movement has a natural fade in uh, the strings are finally heard piano but massed in a big boned way by the 22nd mark i'm going to be using this uh, word big, big boned, boned a lot yeah. on this album these are all <laughs> big boned works this is no respite really this movement is fairly quiet and rather icy with a sweeping thickly layered string theme uh, the layering disappears in the fourth minute, and we hear what I think is a distant harp in its high end, though it could be something else. A wind melody comes in afterwards with all kinds of interesting overtones and harmonies heard accompanying the rest of the orchestra. The work ends with the massed strings satisfyingly ending their theme, after which the harp, I'm guessing that's what it is, does a natural fade. This was a pretty compelling work, carried heavily by its timbres, but there's plenty of thematic material to hear as well. Okay, so we're off to an appealing start. It was a little bit of a challenge, but it's a, it's a good work. It's very enjoyable orchestrally. The next uh, work is by uh, Ulo Kriegel, and this is called Corde, composed in 2013. And uh, the uh, writer of the book, Nella Eva Steinfeld, lays out this work's themes better than I can, so I'm going to just read what she wrote here. Um, the title Corde is of ancient Greek and Latin origin and has multiple meanings both in music and linguistics. It is the source of the English word designating a harmonic set of pitches, so chord, and the Italian word corda for this, is the word for the string of an instrument. In French, the word d'accord means to agree. Uh, one of the uh, basic forms of musical agreement is indeed the chord. Okay, so by now you're figuring out how Kriegel thinks when he puts his ideas together. He's just kind of trying to get all these meanings into one work and kind of connect them all. The chord is a form of musical agreement. It is an order and accordance among pitches. It is never a passive state, but a fluctuating relationship between several pitches that sound together. That is what chord is based certain specific chords and their integral characteristics. So the way they kind of all connect with everything else. This starts with some uh, pounding Big boned percussion <laughs> and sustained chords. The percussion quietens but continues underneath. In the chords, there are a lot of swooping string glissandos, 
both upwards and downwards. As the material goes on, new timbres are introduced. Uh, it's a pretty interesting work for the ears, different timbres peeking out of the complex sound patterns. At the three minute mark, we get a simple flute theme fluttering over wind accompaniment. Uh, the piece has become gentler, but still a bit foreboding. By the three minute and 30 second mark, the strings come in and start the insistent loud accents of the beginning again. The uh, percussion in this work is mighty indeed. <laughs> Listen in the fourth minute, and really throughout, you can really go anywhere. Uh, the material tends to morph into new sounds and rhythms in the fit, you know, I guess kind of in keeping with the, the new ideas that he's connecting mm. with this idea of corday. In the fifth minute, we've got an instant rhythm dividing the material about it above it, uh, like it's a rushing river and the thematic material are objects caught in the tide. All of this is beautifully realized by the ensemble and by Yervi's conducting, as you would expect in this music. You've really got the ideal conductor for this. He's fully immersed in the, the music of his country, Estonia. Uh, the piece ends suddenly and sounds are allowed to dampen into silence. Uh, it's a bit challenging, but the performance makes it eminently listenable. Then we get to track five, Helena Tulve, L'Ombre Derrière Toi. Again, from the booklet notes, this is from 2011, by the way. Tulve's music is inspired by Gregorian chant, oriental music, and French spectral music. Uh, for her, music is strongly connected to the human soul and voice, and therefore it is very intimate, primal, and sincere. Yeah, I'd underline the word primal there. <laughs> at, the heart of her, at the heart of her music is incessant change and the processes relating, related to it. The work and its title are inspired by a proverb known throughout the world with minor variations. And the example that uh, the writer of the book, the booklet note, gives is uh, from Japan. This proverb says, look at the sun and the shadows will fall behind you. So l'ombre derrière means the, the shadow behind you. This recording uses a viola and two cellos, which apparently weren't in the original version. Anyway, it starts quietly with an insistently repeating low string pattern. The strings playing the pattern are added to, and soon we are hearing a small ensemble of them. This takes time to build up, but by 2 minutes and 33 seconds we've gained enough momentum so that the melody can be expressed in the strings. Uh, layers of strings build up beneath the melody, and soon we're hearing short patterns again, until at 4 minutes and 48 seconds there is silence. After this pause, lower, more swarming cellos build up a harmony and elaborate on the opening motif. Another pause, and another start at 5 minutes and 29 seconds. This time there's a contrast between the low bass and swooping high strings in the violins. There's a slow crescendo up to the 7 minute mark, after which the chord suddenly drops to a lower one, and the music continues to build upward from there. A decrescendo occurs, and we're in the murky, quiet, low end of the orchestra by the 8th minute. There's a crescendo to some screeching patterns at the 9 minute mark, both in the high and low strings. The material decrescendo is by the 10th minute, leaving us with only a single droning tones in the high and low ends that eventually fade to silence. It's a challenging piece, very difficult to describe. <laughs> I didn't give you any idea what this sounds like. You're just going to have to hear it, but just be prepared. This is going to make you do some work. I wrote the buzzing insect like string interval <laughs> figures. <laughs> okay, that's fair. It's a very abstract composition and kind of like the title implies. And you'll probably never hear a better performance of it than you did here. So, <laughs> Anyway, we do get a break coming up next. The uh, sixth track is Tauno Ains, 
I hope I'm saying that right. I couldn't get the pronunciation for all of these words, these names. Ainz is um, born in 1975, and this is his Overture Estonia. Ainz is known for his stage works. He was commissioned by the Estonian Song and Dance Festival Foundation to write the piece My Fatherland for children's choirs. Uh, the song's lyrics contain two haunting thoughts. That which I hear, which I see and feel, that is my fatherland. And my fatherland, you are beautiful and so ugly at the same time. <laughs> well, that's honest. Yeah. <laughs> These two thoughts, I think we could all say yeah, that about uh, where, where we're from. If we're really honest. Anyway, these two thoughts made Ains think of what he would say about his own fatherland, so he wrote this overture for that. There are no vocals in this, by the way. This starts with a rather lively martial theme, so marching uh, in the strings, uh, rising. The orchestra is, ready? Big boned. Big boned. <laughs> um, and tuneful. They really like these big, because you don't think of Aro Parrot as big boned. He's not. Mm, no, he's but subtle. Neither is really Etke's Ventura. Yeah, he's very subtle. Anyway, it's tuneful too, this particular work, which makes this unique so far on this program. There's a lot of sparkle to the composition. It's lively up to the two minute mark, after which there's an ominous buildup that ends in silence just after the three minute mark. And we then hear a mysterious flute melody with ghostly lightly chiming accompaniment from what sounds like a celesta. Uh, this theme very gradually builds in warmth and crescendos and it's beautiful use of the orchestra in this. You can hear this in the fourth minute. By the sixth minute, we're hearing gentler, more melodic material. And this suddenly stops at the six minute and 44 second mark when a winding string thing is heard and followed by serene wind chords and a gentle brass melodies, evoking a peaceful, sunny day to me. The piece ends here. It's really nice. This is uh, one to sample, actually, if you just want to hear one thing from the album. Track six, Overture, mm. Estonia. Really beautiful and rather touching, too. Track seven, we get to Ulo Kriegel again. This piece is called The Bow, and it was um, written in 2021. Now, you remember in the earlier work was corday and all the different meanings of the word chord in different languages. Well, Kriegel's going to do that with the bow, too. <laughs> he really seems to enjoy deconstructing words as inspiration for his compositions. Okay, here the writer, Nella Eva Steinfeld, explains that the title The Bow refers to various things that resonated with the composer while composing the piece. Taking a bow, first of all, so different pronunciation mm -hmm. there, taking a bow in front of an audience, using a bow in an archery range, but also the bow of a violin. He borrowed the title from Kim Ki-duk's movie, The Bow. Ki-duk is a Korean, um, South Korean uh, film director, where the bow was a weapon and a musical instrument at the same time. The final lines of the movie were, power and a beautiful sound, I want to live like this until I draw my last breath. So here we have chimes and harsh brass chords start this off. This is a lot rougher <laughs> going than the corday piece was, I have to say. The chords are arranged in a pattern that repeats three times and is added to each time until it achieves a kind of escape velocity and starts generating more material. One idea morphs into a new idea in a winding way with new motifs and patterns suddenly emerging. There's a change to something lighter at the 2 minute and 24 second mark when the winds take over the accompaniment, a rhythm that eventually takes on a bouncing quality by the 2 minute and 50 second mark. At 3 minutes and 8 seconds, this is taken over by a pizzicato string instrument, after which it dissipates into a breathier, more anxious section. Things that stick out are when the music suddenly comes into stark profile. 
uh, like at 3 minutes and 40 seconds when an isolatable pattern emerges. Often with Kriegel, we're getting many patterns happening at once, so it can be hard to describe what's happening. At the 5 minute and 45 second mark, just a minute before the end, the layers disappear, and we have chiming patterns across sustained chords and tones. The piece ends with the chords simply petering out. The last piece is by a well-known uh, composer, the only non-contemporary composer on this album, Lepo Sumera. Uh, he lived from uh, 1950 to the year 2000. And this is his Olympic Music One. This was written for the opening ceremony of the Tallinn Sailing Regatta at the 1980 Olympic Games. You might remember that as the one in the Soviet Union that the U.S. boycotted. <laughs> remember when we were kids and we had no idea what was happening because there were no computers at the time, right? Anyway, keep in mind that Estonia was part of the Soviet Union at this time. So this would have been, you know, sort of like a patriotic piece for their region, all right? The composition was initially recorded with uh, quadraphonic sound, and the balance of instrument groups was deliberately altered to boost the illusion of power and multi-dimensionality. What a shame mm. we couldn't hear this on surround sound, yeah. right? Alpha doesn't do Super Audio CD, though. It, it would have been nice, though, to have a recording of this in that format. Anyway, uh, this starts with some compelling timbres. We hear scattered octaves slowly played and repeating. The entire piece up to a minute and 26 seconds consists of these sustained notes and the rhythm set by the repeating octaves. Then more thematic material emerges in the winds. At 2 minutes and 16 seconds, we have an enjoyable rhythmic pattern with chirping winds and breezy swirling string chords. A slow brass fanfare emerges from the texture at 2 minutes and 50 seconds and keeps circling around. The material is repetitive and very appealing on a first listen. Uh, surely more so with repeated listenings. Uh, there's a nice chiming burst at the five-minute mark, indicating a climax, after which the material fades and the profile quietens. We hear brass chords in the lower end and a chirping flute afterwards. At the end of the piece is very quiet. It sounds like faint blowing through a wind instrument, and I can hardly make it out over the clacking of my uh, type. I'm just typing on the computer as I'm like listening to this. <laughs> I can barely hear the sounds at the end. It just sounds like these faint, like kind of like, mm. kind of Strange something ringing, blowing yeah. through a wind instrument. And it, that, that goes on for about a minute until the piece finally ends. And it just fades naturally. So anyway, this is a pretty uh, excellently programmed disc. It's demanding and entertaining by turns. Yervi has arranged his program so that we get some welcome sugary breaks, the Aints and the Sumera pieces, from the more demanding material. I wouldn't call any of this off-putting. Uh, some of it will just demand more attention, and I think it's worth the effort. There are some compelling orchestral textures to be heard. There's nothing resembling Arvo Pert on the album, but it's a compelling look into what's happening in what is perhaps currently the most vibrant culture for Western classical music. I'd recommend it, but for more adventurous listeners only. If you're not feeling particularly adventurous, sample track six. I think you'll enjoy it a lot. It's modern music to be sure you'll have to be in the right mood for it. And I was when I sat down for it. <laughs> Some days I would say uh, no way to something like this, but I was uh, kind of up for yeah. it. Sometimes you have to catch the right day. Yeah, yeah. I've, I've had that too with some of the My impressions, well. uh, overall, these pieces have really interesting timbre blends. There's like all yes. kinds of waves of different sound coming at once and things happening. They're not terribly melodic. You won't come away humming the themes but it's mm. another one of those baths of sound 
like you were talking about. And in that way, it's enjoyable, especially it's dynamic with the big brass and uh, lots of good percussion mixed in there as well. The one I enjoyed least was the Tulve. I could give that a pass to yeah, listen to again. Uh, but I that really was the liked, one I had a rough time with too. Yeah, mm. To the Moonlight is endearing and um, yeah. very atmospheric. And uh, the Estonia Overture is probably the most approachable one and uh, quite an endearing you know, theme with some kind of uh, national love built into it as well. So I enjoyed those a lot. But uh, yeah, nothing uh, too hard to listen to here. Uh, I just found it more yeah, atmospheric. If you sit down in an atmospheric kind of mood, you'll be bathed in lots of interesting, you know, full sections of the orchestra and changing palettes of tone mm-hmm. colors. And it was an interesting experience that way. Yeah, big bones. I, I kind of feel like when I'm listening to music like this too, some of those, like there's so much happening at the same time in some of these works and it just feels so compressed in. That's sort of like that scene in The Matrix where like Neo learns Kung Fu in like a second, you know, like or, it's just all this music <laughs> material is just injected into your brain and it's there and you can't really explain it. It's just, you know, it kind of well, felt like that a little bit. I think a lot me. of these modern of these works. pieces, they don't mm-hmm. like rely on traditional sort of melodic movement and so the timing we're used to in music with cadences mm-hmm. and rhythms are are not there. And so you, right. you get these new elements introduced uh, when you're maybe not ready for them. And then there's layers and lots of things happening at once in sort of a vertical kind of way. And <laughs> sometimes you're not really sure yeah. what just happened. You know, take a few listens right. to go back and then be prepared for what's coming next in that way. Because it's not like a melody that you can remember. It's more sort of a, an experience of scenes, you know, almost right. you know, like a, a movie or something that you're going to experience rapid changes in. But sonically, if you like any of these, I think if you go back and listen to them again, your memory will be more cued in uh, without the expectations that normally develop, you know, through sort of harmonic tensions. But if you can kind of remember a sequence of things, you'll adjust to them more easily. Yeah, I think also a lot of um, rhythm and just the the layering of sounds kind of comes from people's experience of their own environment, especially when Mm. they're writing like patriotic works of their where they live and i've never been to estonia so i really don't know what it looks like i imagine it's pretty cold (laughs) in the winter and and rather stark in places judging by the music but i mean if you've been there i mean you can probably pick up on a lot of these elements a lot Mm. more easily so it's it's a foreign sort of um way of you know kind of um for us, it is, yeah. you know, for, yeah. for a foreign kind of um, culture that we're kind of hearing a very intimate sort of um, evocation of. Right. It just makes it more interesting, really. All right. We'll move on into yeah. the jazz section. And, well, we're going to mm-hmm. go to a place we've never been before. And we're going oh. to uh, check out the kind of music, veterans music, and also two debut recordings from places that... Uh, we're going to visit along the way as well. This is all music that was uh, recorded in December. So it's pretty fresh stuff. And it's almost hmm. all original compositions. There's a few things that aren't, but <laughs> I've never heard them before. <laughs> There's no jazz standards mixed in here. So this was a real challenging sort of uh, description episode for me, but yeah. I enjoyed it a lot and uh, learned some... We should just call it the challenging description episode because I <laughs> yeah, you had it too. Same, yeah. way. same way. 
Hey, we're going to hop from Estonia to Croatia. And uh, we yeah, I just been, mentioned Croatia. Yeah, Croatian <laughs> soccer. And so we've got some Croatian music. And, uh, well, I don't know anything about Croatian jazz. So I saw this as an opportunity to get that extra passport stamp. And that was uh, quite an mm. interesting journey here. And we're talking about the Croatian guitarist Ante Gelo, who is by uh, what I've learned from reading about him, one of the most in-demand guitarists in Croatia. And his new recording, Mara, and it's on actually Croatia Records. How about that? <laughs> and this yeah, came out December 23rd. Out well. Yeah, right before Christmas. And it's kind of an interesting combination. It's essentially, uh, it's a sextet, but it's sort of uh, organ trio bass with some horns and an additional bass player. Uh, so no, normally when you have an organ trio, the organ, if it's like a Hammond uh, organ, will have the pedal bass taking the bass duties. But those are split here. And we'll get into how that sort of unfolds as I go through. Anyway, Gelo is uh, from Zagreb, born in 1974. And he graduated uh, in jazz guitar at the University of Music and Performing Arts in Graz. And he also enrolled in a master's degree there in composition and arranging. And he's performed at numerous concerts and festivals throughout Croatia, Slovenia, all around Europe, really. And he's played on some major world stages, La Olympia in Paris, also Royal Albert Hall in London. And he's even been in Carnegie Hall in New York. And some of those performances he did with uh, Oliver Dragojevic, who I guess is a famous... Croatian singer and uh, songwriter as well. One of his songs is on here, but I uh, <laughs> confess my ignorance of Croatian <laughs> music. So we're going to learn uh, a little bit about some of that uh, here. So Gelo's on guitar. We've got Lee Harper on trumpet, Alice Susha on saxophone, alto sax, Alberto Morisco on Hammond organ, Mesij Domorazak on bass, and Krunoslav Levacic on drums. And it's going to be another pronunciation challenge as we get uh, weekly on adult music. Here we go. With, uh, no, we do it next here. week. <laughs> <laughs> but we'll do our best here. However, we're going to start out uh, on this recording, not with a Croatian title, but a French one. Echantillon Gratuit. Mm. Free sample. Guess is what it means. Is that what it means? Yeah, I guess example. so. Yeah, yeah. And what well, you'll kind of get that meaning when you get to the end because you're going to go through a lot oh. of material in this first track. Uh, it starts out with a slow rubato minor melody. There's a lot of minor melodies on this recording, I have to say, um, mm. and that's worked by Gelo's guitar, the horns, and the organ together. The organ has a kind of very wavering, ghostly tone that we'll hear later in the recording too, and there's some kind of mallet instrument in here too. I don't know what it is. It's kind of like a, a dull marimba sounding uh, kind of thing. There's no credits about it, though. Uh, they repeat this line, and then uh, Lavacic gets a busy drum beat intro into the main tune going. Uh, the melody is a swinging minor theme handled by Gelo with interesting interplay with the horns, sometimes doubling and sometimes playing around the guitar. The structure has like a 16-bar section that's repeated, and then another 16-bar section with forward-pushing syncopated phrases. 
A susha comes out of that for an alto sax solo first. He swings nicely. He has really soft articulation over the busy walking of Domarudaki and drum fills of Levacic. Uh, Morisco adds swelling organ underneath and is up next for a solo uh, after a syncopated backing line from the others. He's got tight, bouncy, bluesy licks, clear articulation, uh, and an energetic solo. Uh, the syncopated transition line comes back into what seems like is going to be a drum solo, but no. Domorozaki starts laying down a new slower ostinato bass groove, and Levacic matches up uh, with him, and Gelo adds a repeating riff to that groove. Uh, the organs and horns join in and build up new lines, then it chills out for a solo from Gelo over Levacic working interesting rhythms uh, on the toms and rims. Gelo has a soft, dark tone on his guitar, and he works really tasty little rhythmic licks, bluesy, and more reaching harmonic ideas as well. He works it up to some choppy chords into a trumpet solo from Harper. He's got a nice warm tone, some exciting trills and harmonic exploration in his lines. Uh, the full band lines form uh, from before come back uh, with the mallet instrument mixed in there again. Uh, they come to a hold and go back to the opening rubato theme. Then Levacic works around some more on the drum kit, getting another light beat going, and there's a final new melody section of sax guitar and that mallet instrument exploring some folk-like modal lines in a six-beat meter over the drums to the end. <laughs> this is quite a journey of free samples for almost 10 minutes to get this recording going. <laughs> then track two, Totschka, which means dots, I believe. Uh, this one's a ballad. Starts with a big Hammondy sound on a four-measure intro from Morisco. Gelo comes in with the melody, nice rich tone again, relaxed phrasing. Levacic has delicate drum textures underneath, and here Morisco's handling the bass duties on the Hammond organ pedals. Uh, there's some nice harmonies and shifts to minor along the way in the 16-bar melody, and the organ backing is very lush. Uh, they go around that pattern twice, and then Harper's up for a trumpet solo. Actually, it sounds like a flugelhorn here because the tone is nice and fuzzy with soft articulation. Uh, he takes 16 bars for himself, really tasty playing. Then Morisco's up with a new tone on an organ solo. It's rhythmically playful. Uh, gets some waves of lines flowing underneath. And Gela returns for another short run through the melody and a pretty guitar cadenza uh, to end the tune. All right, here's the... Here's the hardest uh, one to pronounce, track three. I have no idea. Uh, I uh, tried to uh, yeah. do text-to-speech, but you I tried couldn't to look remember this up? it. Yeah, I tried it. Sekanya Yednog Rinigspilia. Anyway, I can tell you what it means. That's close enough, I guess. Yeah. Memories yeah. of a Carousel. That's the translation. Oh, nice. Yeah. Gillo starts it out with a funky guitar riff, uh, but it's in 5-4 time. Uh, this has got an interesting feel for four measures. Uh, bass and drums join in for a repeat and a break into the bluesy melody handled by Morisco on organ. It moves like a 12-bar blues plus four more bars of the riff uh, with a break in between choruses. Uh, they go around once more with the horns adding syncopated backing hits, and then Morisco comes out with an organ solo. Uh, he's got really cool, choppy blues phrases. Harper gets a trumpet solo next with some kind of puckish, fun phrasing, uh, cool double-time lines thrown in. And Gelo falls with sometimes choppy and sometimes pearly bluesy lines and cool bent double stops. Uh, they go back to the riff and another run around the organ melody with horns added. And there's a fun pause at the end with a drum hit and some final organ thoughts before it's all over. Track four is called Moditva za Magdalena, or Prayer for Magdalene. And uh, this is a hmm. tune by Oliver 
Drogojevic, uh, the Croatian singer. Gelo gives it a solo rubato opening. It's got a really longing and pretty melody, and he mixes uh, moving chord lines and lightly dashing lines in with great taste and a lovely warm tone. Uh, the organ and drums join in softly after more than a minute as Gelo plays the melody delicately. Morisco's covering the bass on organ pedals here in this tune, and he gets a solo with the organ stop combination that has a deep tone but a nice clear attack. Uh, he adds some darting figures as well, but keeps it subtle to match the mood of the tune. Uh, Gelo comes back for an improvised solo, and Lovacic gives drum accents uh, to his more animated but fluid lines with nice ringing guitar tones. Uh, they bring it to a pause, and then Gelo gets it moving with organ and drums a bit more before taking a final guitar cadenza to the last chord. I like how he works the chords and bass lines under his melody and the cadenza so he can follow all the parts uh, as like a complete instrument. Track five is called Chena, and I don't know what that is. Maybe it's a name. There's mm -hmm. another mellow tune, this time in 6-8 meter. There's a four-bar intro of alternating organ chords with Domorodzaki back on bass. Agello takes the gentle 12-bar melody on guitar around once, and then sax and muted trumpet join in for another round. Harper takes a muted trumpet solo, and then Morisco gets one on organ. The tempo drops away for Gelo to continue on soloing with delicate cymbal textures pasted around him. Uh, when he's done with his more flowing ideas, he changes it up to a kind of oompa-pa rhythm uh, that gets going, mm. and Morisco joins in with some haunted house-sounding organ <laughs> playing a new melody. <laughs> <laughs> it's like Adam's family stuff here. Uh, he keeps it going with a new tone, and the horns join in the fun. And then they bring back the swinging 6-8 feel uh, for a sax solo from Susha. And I'm thinking, by now, uh, here and before, and then what we'll hear after, he should be up higher in the mix for the sax solos, actually both the horns, because he has a really soft playing style. And I thought during the solo lines, the sax could come up a few decibels. Gelo follows that with a guitar solo, uh, bringing it down into a final melody run with the horns to end it. Track six is a J.J. Johnson trombonist's kind of tune that became almost a jazz standard called Lament, but they give it a really unique uh, original arrangement. It's usually done as a ballad, but here uh, it's got a, a real more funky kind of treatment. Uh, Domorodzaki gets it started with a funky minor bass ostinato. Drums join in, and Susha and Gelo work the melody lines on guitar and sax. It's got a lot of twists over and an extended form with some minor modal lines that are a little bit uh, folk sounding in it. Uh, they break into a more straight-ahead mm. swing with walking bass for a guitar solo from Gelo, and he has a drier tone on this tune, works some more adventurous harmonic ideas over the alternating chords that imply some kind of modal adventures. Uh, Susha is next on sax with a smooth solo. Again, could be a little bit louder. Uh, Morisco gets a bouncy solo, having some fun with the rhythmic phrases of his lines. And then Domorodzaki has a bass solo uh, with fast lines and tight articulation. And finally, Levacek gets a drum solo into a return of the ostinato into a last run of the melody line. Track seven is called Dog Song. And Morisco Gives it a moody 16-bar organ intro, and he's on bass pedals on this tune. Uh, Gelo adds little fills before going into the melody. It's another minor theme with tricky syncopated phrases, but Gelo handles them very swingingly. Uh, it seems to be a 32-bar ABAB construction with an added two-bar break. Uh, he's swinging and fluid with the warm tone back on this tune. It plays on and on in his solo. A very 
endless ideas coming out. Morisco provides a variety of backing on organ chords and different bass pedal ideas. And then he also mixes up uh, bluesy ideas in his own organ solo, building with shorter phrases into bigger lines nicely. Geller returns to trade eights with Lavachik and Morisco into an extended drum solo. They return to the intro idea and take another run through the melody to finish it up. Track eight, Professor Baltazar. Now, this is a uh, hmm. Croatian animated TV show. I guess we never got to ah. see it in uh, the U.S. Yeah. Uh, over there. Uh, so I checked out the theme because uh, I didn't know this. And you can see the original animation music on uh, YouTube. <laughs> it's got a lot of repeated Baltazar, Baltazar in the vocals. Um, yeah. So here they... They give it a fun arrangement. You can tell it's kind of a, a theme uh, with horn lines that have a lot of interplay of exchanged lines between the different instruments uh, before Gello takes off on the melody. There's a solo break, and then, well, Baltazar gets the blues, or at least Gello does. They make the solos a fast-swinging 12-bar blues structure. Uh, there's a fun 8-bar bridge with horns between the solos, and then Harper is up next with an agile trumpet solo, and he takes the bridge section by himself to end it. And then Morisco goes on organ. Dumrodzaki on bass here uh, rather than organ pedals, and he has fast walking going on under the organ's bluesy licks. Then Susha is up next on alto sax, gets up high on the bridge section to finish up into a new arrangement of horn lines with Harper that has sections of drum solos in it and then works back into the fun melody arrangement to finish it up. We're going to end the recording with the title track, Mara. This one kind of fades in and Gello introduces us to a more gnarly guitar tone on the intro. It's another minor theme. Morisco has hypnotic organ riffs going. Gello takes the melody. It's in 7-4 time, but then switches up to 6-4 for two bars and then two bars of seemingly 8-4 time. (laughs) Uh, Morisco gets a skittering solo with some high register pulsing lines and Gello has a real rocky solo here. Some cool tricky rhythmic licks navigating the interesting landscape of meters. Uh, Levacic gets a great groove and cymbal work going on underneath and gets the solo over organ bass vamping until Gello comes back with a new raunchy riff to lead back into the intro and melody. Uh, they take it out with some crunchy chord jamming from Gello as Levacic beats it up on the drums. So there's a lot to listen to on this recording. There's cool organ trio work at the bass set inside this sextet with uh, horn arrangements and bass on some of the tunes uh, to add variety from just the organ foot pedals. The tunes and arrangements are interesting, uh, going to unexpected places, kept me guessing. Gello's guitar playing is great, inventive solos, nice tone. Morisco's organ work is excellent too. Uh, Lots of variety in the organ stops and good backing. I thought the horns could come up in the mix, especially for the solos, but other than that, it's a kind of uh, engaging journey of a recording. Yeah, you know, when you were saying about the Professor Baltazar, it's like <laughs> yeah. really amazing that we could even go to YouTube and just see this, <laughs> yeah. this very foreign cartoon, yeah. you know, that we have yeah. otherwise have no way of seeing. And then was when I was hearing you say that, I was thinking, yeah, but if it weren't for the computer, we probably wouldn't even be hearing this album. No, so we, wouldn't. we wouldn't even know what that was. It's just a really odd thing. Anyway, it's this is a good, entertaining album. I like. I always like the guitar and organ combination, right. as I know you do, and. uh there's some stylish playing on the guitar from Ante Gello. Yeah, there is some, um, I guess you could say, ethnic elements in the music, mm-hmm. and they're pretty discreet for the most part, except uh, for the the waltz in the middle of track five, yeah. China, which where it's full on. 
And like you, I complained about the recessed sound of the saxophone. It really sounds like he's too far away from the mic. The playing is fantastic. I liked it a lot. Hmm. Um, it would have been good to have him more up front so that the sound would make more of an impact or perhaps just boost it in the mix. The trumpet sometimes suffers from this as well. I think mm-hmm. the engineer was just too cautious with the mics. The brass are always clearly audible, although, you know, besides these two, but don't make an impact beyond the ears when they're heard. Like, I want a, more of a body mm. impact with those two. The guitar is front and center, sounds great. The drummer is the one player who really drew my attention. Well, they all drew my attention, but he drew my attention more than the others. He's well recorded. All of his details are audible. They're all really interesting, too. Mm. He has ear grabbing ideas and a good sense of the various rhythms he uses. I found uh, his playing to be creative. So I would say give a give a listen to the drummer on this record, mm. too, as well as the uh, yeah. the rest of the ensemble. And of course, Mr. Gillow himself on the guitar. Really good album. Yeah. Yeah. Croatia. We've got another country in the book yeah. and uh, some yeah interesting jazz happening there. Hope to hear some of these other musicians yeah. doing other things. So yeah, that suitcase is being covered with stickers now. It sure is. What do they and, call those uh, things? Those big cases that people used to travel with? They look like you could fit a dead body in them. Oh, yeah, those <laughs> really big ones. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, we'll be looking for Croatia Records uh, releases in the future. See what other jazz comes out of there. Well, keep your passport handy. We're going to go to the Netherlands next. For okay. A Dutch piano trio. This is a recording I'm really excited about. And another piano recording we're going to hear next week. These two really, I've been listening to a lot. But uh, this one's fabulous. It's a debut recording from a Dutch pianist, Jelle Vandermeulen, and his trio. It's on Stichting 29 record label. It's called Time Ticking. And it just came out December 28th. I mean, you're really current. Yeah, very current. (laughs) We've got... uh, Tees Larker on bass, Nitin Paris on drums, and we've got the guest to the trio, Hidon Nunes Vaz on trumpet. And the recording uh, here, which is excellent sound, is done by Franz Durand, uh, recording, mixing, and mastering. I really like this recording. Uh, It's fabulous for a debut, as I said. All original music. And we're going to start out with track one. (laughs) There had to be a blues, right? So uh, you get one on every recording. And so they wrote one for this. And a blues it is, uh, with Nunes Vaz and Werner Mullen taking the sassy repeated falling riffs that make part of the melody together uh, with trumpet and right-hand piano. But there are cool left-hand piano and bass answering phrases. And then... Vandermillen gets some sections of the melody on his own. The structure is interesting with an eight-bar section plus a 12-bar blues for a total of 20 bars of melody. Vandermillen plays around on a more statically harmonic eight-bar section two times in his solo before getting into that 20-bar pattern uh, that contrasts. And you can tell it because there's a movement to the expected chord change on the fifth bar where we would normally hear the uh, four chord here. It's a different chord. I think it's a minor uh, kind of substitution here. But he's got nice snappy rhythms, a relaxed overall phrasing approach, not too many notes, which is always a good thing on the blues. Um, when he does play runs, they show a nice sense of soft touch that's balanced out with more percussive ringing chords. Uh, Nunes Vaz is a big warm trumpet sound and relaxed phrasing, even through his tumbling double time boppy influence lines. Uh, he gets a solo that goes around a 20 bar pattern twice. And then Larker follows with one time around on bass, deep tone, snappy articulation. They go around the melody 
once more and then vamp out with Vandermeulen and Nunes Vaz exchanging bluesy phrases to a soft piano ending. Track two, Bagatelle. Here, Vandermeulen and Larker started out with a soft rhythmic piano and bowed bass 10-bar introduction. Uh, they continue with a melody phrase that has a little hold for Paré to join in with soft brushes, Larica to switch to soft plucking bass. Uh, they continue on. The melody phrase lengths seem to vary from 9 to 10 bar lengths. Uh, Vandermeulen gradually goes from a more impressionistic ringing chord style to more animated improvised figures, and Paris subtly builds up the drum groove underneath. A lyrica matching with more bouncy bass. It has a nice flow to it with some ringing right-hand piano ideas before lyrica gets a softly bubbling bass solo. They reset a bit softer back to the melody theme, and then continue on with some repeated alternating chord measures for some final ideas from Vandermeulen. It's an uplifting and flowing composition. Track three is called Why So Serious? Uh, this one's a fun, <laughs> floating, and airy tune. Nunez Vaz's trumpet blows a breezy melody, centering around intervals over a light-hearted loping left hand and piano bass line. There's an 8-bar A section that repeats, then a sudden change to a 6-8 meter for 16 bars. But what's cool is the trumpet line initially keeps the same figures going on over that new meter, uh, then gets into a little more of a waltzing and then syncopated line. Uh, it returns to the loping 4-bar A section. Vandermeulen is up for a solo first. It's a bright and chimey, getting more animated, over the 6-8 change-up, and then swings harder on the 4-4 four, four sections with solid walking bass underneath from Larker. Nunes Vaz is relaxed, lots of space in his trumpet solo, but he's got tasty and snappy rhythmic phrases and a clear tone in the upper register. Uh, Larker and Paré trade off solo bass and drum ideas, while piano and trumpet drop out for a while, and then join back in for another round of the melody. And it's another really uplifting tune. Track 4, Song for Willie Chong. That's T-J-O-N-G. Uh, Larica and Paris start a great even beat groove with clicky percussion for a 16-bar intro. Vandermeulen adds bouncy chord ideas until entering with the melody. It's a happy theme, lots of space for notes in the upper register to ring out with some snappy rhythmic fills on the way. It's 36 bars with some time at the end for rising single notes to float into a repeat of the first section before Vandermeulen continues on improvising. His phrases are snappy and light with good tone over soft rhythmic left-hand chords and some cool synced two-hand rhythmic ideas. Uh, he works up to more percussive and ringing big chords and then brings it down to a vamp to do some drum work over. And they work it through the first section of the melody again and finish up with repeated ringing chords. Track 5 is Ballad for Nadine. This one starts with a lush wash of tempoless chords and little soft modally figures from Nunez Vaz. Sounds like he's on flugelhorn here. After a hold, Vandermeulen gets it into a slow ballad tempo with piano chords. Nunez Vaz takes the melody with a great fluffy tone and wide vibrato in spots. It's very pretty and nice lush harmonies. Vandermeulen solos first, letting the notes ring out and getting some hypnotic rhythmic patterns softly floating. Nunez Vaz returns for a soft and relaxed solo, but with some clear high register tones, and Larikar gets a nicely melodic bass solo reaching way down low. Uh, the flugel returns to finish the melody into a pretty ending. Track 6, WJR. This is a super rhythmic one, 
carried along by the rocky groove of Paris drums. Uh, it seems like a 13-measure intro. I'm not really sure how long the melody is because Vandermeulen blends it into his improvisations with a solo of snappy phrases that work into the groove. Uh, he works up into some ringing percussive chord playing and some exciting two-handed versions of the rhythmic lick he has been playing around with. Paris beats up the excitement underneath, and Larica has a throbbing pulse underneath on the bass. They bring it down softer to go through the melody again, and this time it sounds like it's 32 bars, uh, and then vamp out for a while around a progression for some final slowing wave-like piano ideas. Track 7 is the title track, Time Ticking, and this one has an 8-bar beginning. It's got a descending left-hand line that creates a sense of like time running out, <laughs> sand flowing through the hourglass or something. Uh, the melody has gently unfolding theme. Maybe it's 34 bars long. There's an ascending even eight note line synced between piano and bass, descending offbeat patterns of chords uh, and bass with left-handed piano lines. Uh, the drum beat stops and then the bass kind of heartbeat that's been going on as well as Vandermeulen trickles out phrases back into the rejoining of bass and drums. I like the long connected lines of rhythmic piano phrases that build on each other. It opens up for a busy rhythmic bass solo from Lariker, and Vandermeulen gets it started again with soft piano notes into the melody sections again, and we hear the descending line section towards the ending once more. And we're going to end up with track 8, Mr. Miller. This one's a fast swinger with tricky syncopation and breaks. Vandermeulen gets it going with some pickups into a a trio intro, then Nunez Vaz is back for the melody with tricky forward pushing licks over the shifting rhythm patterns underneath. He launches into an energetic boppy solo, navigates the changes with good agility and ideas. Then Vandermillen is up next. He starts his solo by picking up the trumpet's final phrase, uh, working low and rhythmically. Then he gets into more reaching snappy right hand lines. He gets some cross rhythmic patterns going uh, that the bass and drums pick up on and has a great explosive pause before the final phrase of his solo. And Nunez Vaz returns to get the melody started, but they vamp out on some chords along the way for Paré to get some drum work in before wrapping it up. It's a fabulous uh, debut album. It's bursting with energetic playing, uh, all original compositions that are catchy and uplifting, but they give you a lot to listen to in detail if you want to figure out what's actually going on. The grooves have a lot of variety from Paré's drums, uh, who locks in well with Larica's bass, Vandermeulen has fresh improvised ideas, a varied touch with lots of enjoyable ringing notes. And Nunes Vaz's trumpet sounds great, especially nice ballad playing and some added tonal variety and excitement when he contributes on half of the tunes. I really can't wait to hear more from this pianist. Yeah, one of the words that kept coming up for me, I'm surprised he didn't use it, was the word uh, warm. This is mm. a really warm sounding album it's it's very appealing and a very comfortable album and it's got lots of content as well um it's engaging throughout without ever losing its overall warm feel uh, both in the piano playing i really liked his sound yeah and in nice. the uh, ensemble work yeah it's just that the uh, variety is subsumed in the overall feel and i kind of like that you know it just mm. had it had this overall warm thing in with all that variety kind of going on inside that sort of nice sort of yeah. calm glow i like the way the uh, gentle swing rhythms come in and out of the compositions like unexpectedly meeting an old friend you know you kind of they, they would have like some kind of groove going then the swing would come in and it just feels so familiar yeah. i just it, it just made me feel good it's a great late night listen so you got your um 
<laughs> yeah. You got your Serenissima for the morning, and now you have um, Yella Andermuelen Trio for uh, the late night. And another one I found here, we've done a lot of Italian jazz. We did one last week, but here's a new player that I've new for me. I believe this is debut recording too. Marco Vavasori. It's a nice name. Yeah, it's on Caligola Records called Walking with Bob. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, when you saw this, um, you say, who's Bob? Well, <laughs> when, I looked, out? <laughs> when I looked up Marco Vavasori, there's not much uh, about him on the internet, but he does have a Facebook page, and it's Marco Bob Vavasori. So I guess he's Bob. Or it could be his uh, alter ego or something. Maybe he's uh, hanging out with his, uh, well, that's his, his alter ego. Who knows? His Maybe he'll write to anyway. us and tell us. We'll find anyway, out. Anyway, the little I could find out about him is he's from Gisolo, and he studied at Conservatorio e Buzzola. He's uh, the leader and bass player, and he's written all original compositions here. Additionally, what drew me to this when I first checked it out is it's got a clarinet on it as uh, the main melody instrument, right. and that's played by Michele Uliana on piano, Alberto Lincetto, and hmm. drums Enrico Smiderle. That's your musicians here. Going to start out with a tune called Hawking. This one's got a rubato and sparse piano opening. The cycle of chords is almost all major, giving it a really airy kind of atmosphere. Bass and drums kick in uh, to set it into tempo, and Favasoy's bass sound will get you right away. It's a really deep tone. Uh, Uliana takes the melody on clarinet. Uh, the first section is made up of short, simple phrases of three rising notes. Uh, the piano doubles that on the next strain in parts. Then Vavasoris has some pulsing bass along with light clicking drums from Smiderle. It seems to be a 24-bar theme with an extra measure of the bass interval we heard at the beginning. Uh, they go around it again, and then Uliana gets a clarinet solo. He starts with simpler lines and works it up into more rhythmic licks and high register exploration all with legato phrasing, matching the uplifting mood of the harmonies. Lincetto falls on piano with a delicate but rhythmically snappy solo. It's a nice light touch in the upper register, building into fuller chords. Vavasori's next with a bass solo. Very nice ringing tone and melodic lines. Just sparse piano accompaniment and soft cymbals to go with him. And they go around the melody again and drift away with wispy clarinet lines over the repeating final bass intervals. Track two. Yeah, sognando. Sognando. Yeah. You say it better than yeah. I do. Well, the GN is like an NY. Think about oh, okay. that. <laughs> sognando. And another like interesting Gnocchi, right? rhythmic Sognata. one. Starts with uh, what sounds like a skinned tambourine. You know, not just the shakers, but it's got a little yeah. tone to it for two right. measures. Uh, clarinet starts a rhythmic minor riff and is joined in unison by Vavasori's bass. I'm not sure of the meter, but I think you could notate it in a slow 12-8 uh, with each riff phrase as one measure of you know four beats. Piano joins in for a couple rounds, and then piano and bass work a different riff for five bars, and finally everyone all together on the previous riff for four bars. Lincetto is up for a piano solo next, with a lot of interesting rhythmic lines and a few cool modal ideas. Then Uliana gets a clarinet solo with some fleet and bubbly lines working from down low to higher sustained notes. That connects back to the original melody progression of licks through the instruments and ends suddenly with no resolving chord. Track three is called Shukran, which I believe means thank you in Arabic. And 
It starts with a tempolous flowing of bass bowing and waves of piano. Uh, the clarinet adds mystical lines and works down into very low tones, and it creates a mysterious Arabic-sounding mirage of sound. We should mention, th this track um, begins with the concluding note of the previous track because it, it resolves here and that it acts as the uh the first, i guess it does yeah you know. really uh through this uh, mirage of sound uliana's clarinet works up into more pleading cries into the high register as uh Smidera's adds more uh, percussion textures it comes down more softly with more flowing clarinet licks and then fades at about two minutes and 40 seconds then Uliana has some pickup notes into the main 16-bar melody in tempo, uh, which is a minor bluesy line with cool stop-time rhythm section backing. Then he continues on into a solo. It swings, but Vavasori has rhythmic pulses with the sparse drumming of Smederle before uh, getting into deep walking bass lines. Uliana has a lot of cool licks on clarinet, mixing bluesy ideas, snappy double-time lines, high cries, and trills. Lincetto's next on piano, a clean, connected lines of ideas in his solo, some ringing high-register chords, bluesy licks, and some really dazzling, trickling runs in this one. Very tasty piano solo. Uh, Vavasori follows with snappy, accented swinging and melodic bluesy lines in his solo, and they go through the melody again with a final long hold and clarinet notes to finish it off. A cool tune. Yeah, this um, the clarinetist in this particular track uses the the whole clarinet palette. <laughs> yeah. He's he's really yeah. all over the place. Yeah, it's a pretty interesting uh, track yeah. for him. Yeah, I, I actually can... mentioned this at the end. So mm, anyway. okay, track four, J B Blues. That's J. Just the letter period, B-E, blues. A drum roll into a 12-bar blues melody. It's a lot of fun because the bass and clarinet take the melody, featuring lots of triplet figures together, uh, with piano and drums providing accented hits around them. They go around twice, and then there's a four-bar tag ending that provides a solo break for Uliana to get started on some blues blowing. Uh, it's a really great solo, starting relaxed and working up to all kinds of creative ideas, bubbling lines. He goes around, I think, for five choruses. Lincetto's next, well. starting light and playful, and getting more harmonically and rhythmically adventurous. And Vavasori follows that, keeping it really melodic and featuring more triplet ideas that we heard in the, in the melody. They all trade fours with Smidere to get in some tasty drumming solo ideas as well. Go around the melody a couple more times, slowing down to some new extra chords for some final clarinet lines and tasty piano tinkling at the end. Track five, uh, I'm not sure, is this hair <laughs> as in the rabbit? Because we living yeah. in Japan, when I see this, I think as the Romanized right. hare, which means clear in Japanese. I thought yeah. the same thing. I couldn't figure this out. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it could be a rabbit. I'm not sure. Or it could mean something else. Anyway, there's an eight-bar intro of two-bar ostinato bass figures from Vavasori. It gets you into a little hypnotic groove. Then the 24-bar melody section is pretty cool. It starts with soft clarinet figures over the bass as the modal chords shift. Uh, the piano joins in with the bass ostinato, and then the clarinet switches over to the same figure too, before it all ends with just ringing piano chords. Vavasori gets the ostinato going again uh, for Lincetto to start a piano solo. He works with light and spaced notes and figures, working in some rich chords and rhythmic figures as well. Uliana's next exploring some cool modal ideas with snaking clarinet lines and tension-building notes, getting in some final 
almost David Liebman soprano sax-like lines at the end. Uh, very cool clarinet playing. Uh, they go around the melody together once more before vamping out with the ostinato and ringing chords for Smidale to get some Tom featured drumming in, and then he builds it up more all around the kit and on cymbals as they push the intensity right to the finish. Track six is called Incontra. It's an eight-bar intro of a four-bar pattern of chords and two syncopated bass notes that form the construction of the whole hypnotic tune. Uh, it goes on with clarinet adding a melody line together with piano over that. Uh, the piano continues on alone over the pattern alone for a bit before Uliana comes back in with soft and long solo phrases. He builds from there, going on and on into more reaching and intense phrases with fills from Lincetto and Smidarle underneath. Uh, after reaching a climax, it comes down softer and Uliana and Lincetto take the melody phrase again. Vavasori sneaks in a faster phrase over the piano chords and I thought maybe it's going to go to a bass solo. But the melody phrase returns and then they <laughs> vamp out on the chords with more soft clarinet lines to the end. Track seven, Kurkuma, which I found out means... Couldn't, couldn't tell you. It's uh, turmeric in German. Oh. Yeah. So add some spice. Learn something um, new every day. Yeah. There's an eight-bar intro of piano chords and a two-bar bouncy 6-8 bass line. The same pattern repeats with clarinet adding a simple minor melody line. A piano joins in gradually and then more intensely for another round together. There's a contrasting more animated B section of the melody where bass, piano, and clarinet all take the bouncy melody together. Uh, that repeats, but in the middle of the repeat, it interestingly slows down. It just like runs out of steam, entering in different slower intervals. Then it resets to the original tempo. Vavasori getting the ostinato going again for eight bars. Uliana soloing above. It gets sparse but keeps moving with bass pulses. Decorative light cymbals and piano trickles under Uliana's floating clarinet lines. Vavasori gets the bass working more busily. Then Uliana and Lichetto trade improvised lines, getting more harmonically free with ringing chord ideas, and then bringing it back softer to another reset of the ostinato and melody. They ended up on the repeat of that slowing down B section. They're going to end with a really happy sounding tune, Francesco's Smile. I don't know who Francesco is, but he must have a really good smile. Uh, because yeah. We don't know who Bob is. We don't know no. who Francesco <laughs> is. This is like a, <laughs> it's a real mystery. But it's a very happy yeah. sounding tune, an eight bar bouncy 6-8 bass intro over a light and busy drum groove. Uliana takes the breezy melody on clarinet, 16 bars with a nice lift and push in the ninth measure of the melody that just moves it on up. Lincetto adds tasty rolling piano figures around him and joins in together more on the second half of the line. They repeat that melody line. Then Vavasori has that bouncy figure still going on. There's some cool bass string rattles uh, in there underneath too. Uh, Uliana gets a clarinet solo and nice flowing phrases, alternating registers uh, in some of his lines. And he's very playful. Vavasori Next, uh, keeps the bouncy feel going and working fine melodic ideas into the upper register. Uh, Lincetto follows up with a happy sounding piano solo featuring a rhythmic repeated note and some flowing rolled chords at the end. And then Uliana comes back for another couple runs through the melody to finish it up with a long held clarinet note. And that's it. Very enjoyable recording. All the tunes mix uplifting melodies and uh, more hypnotic jamming patterns on some of the later tunes. 
a cool original blues in there too, as well as some modal influenced tunes. Uh, Vavasotti's bass tone and his playing overall are really excellent. And I also enjoyed Lincetto's tasty piano playing as well. But uh, having Uliana's clarinet as the lead instrument gives a unique lightness to the melodies of all the tunes, and his clarinet solos are really exciting as well. I thought the sonics of this recording are really good. It has a very open mm. and natural sound. Everything's very easy to hear with this space that's built in the compositions and also in the recording. It's a great recording for an afternoon on the weekend to put you in a happy mood. First of all, it, yeah, it's an amazingly clear recording. There's even the quietest details of yeah. the drumming and bass playing are easily heard. You, you can hear like someone soloing, all sorts of things happen, and you'll hear this light sort of tapping on the, the, the you know, the cymbals or something mm. like that by the drums, and it's still registering really clearly. It's an amazing recording. This is great news too because the pianist achieves a beautiful tone throughout. That's well caught on the album. The pianist on this has a way of throwing the rhythm of the track into high relief when he plays. And I think his solos originate from the rhythm because whenever he comes in, suddenly the rhythm is is front and center. Uh-huh. I thought that was really interesting. Notice how things come to focus rhythmically whenever he plays, I would say. There's a clarinet solo on track three, Shukran, which I, really stood out for me. Um, the mm. clarinetist uses the whole clarinet palette. Uh, he's a player with a lot of ideas and is interesting really throughout the recording. This album, to me, functions as a warm enjoyable recording in an album with great solo ideas and great tone coming from the instruments. So it's basically everything you'd really want in a jazz album. You could say it has a classical finish to it as far as the sound quality and timbres go. Yet it remains a solid jazz album. It's very satisfying. Yeah. So that's what I have to say. With uh, what we can find on the internet and information of these new recordings and then go listen to it right away. All three of these albums would have been things I would have never known about. You know, right, 20 I'm years kind ago of or something. noticing that myself. And it just lets you know how international jazz music has become and the fine level of musicians located anywhere around the globe. I really think it's worth investigating and hearing this um, great original music. We are all original tunes yeah. by fine musicians uh, in this episode. And that's what's really exciting for me. So wherever you go in the world, jazz will be there waiting for you. Yeah. <laughs> Take the time to check out these recordings. I think you'll be pleased if you like really well played and fresh material in your jazz listening. Don't just keep listening to those same old Blue Note recordings. Get with it. Get international <laughs> and hear some new stuff. It's really exciting. No, or also hear some new Blue Note recordings. Gotta, I yeah. don't know. I still love those 50s and 60s records, but I mean, I've heard them all in my youth. I kind of feel like I want to just you keep hearing new stuff. Actually, you know? I have um, the opposite yeah. problem now since we've been doing this podcast. I'm constantly listening to mu- new music. I mean, we do yeah. six a week, and then I try to get in right. these other ones to check out if I want to talk about them. And right. so I often feel like, you know, I need to take a day and just go through yeah. something on my shelves or on my music server and the just uh, yeah. review and uh, enjoy something old. Um, and also it was scary when we did the, <laughs> the end of the year episode, best of 2022. I had to go back and try to remember a lot of the ones because we went through, you know, more than 300 last year. So Yeah, that was a lot. We're going to do that again this year too, probably. We're oh. aiming towards that. Yes. So. 
Anyway, yeah. we sort them out and we pick them for you. So <laughs> I think if you can trust our our judgment, leave the searching to us and uh, just check out the playlist. And uh, next week, well, I know I've got all 2023 recordings for jazz. So everything is freshly wow. squeezed right in the wow. new year. I'm not quite there yet, but there were just um, the first um, classical releases of 2023 came out on Friday. And there are a lot of good ones right mm. away. I think they were holding them for the new year because right. in the last few weeks of December there was like nothing right. <laughs> so you've got some from the end of the year but I'm not going to have those yet I'm still going to go back into the past because I have a we did Estonia today I've got a Latvian recording I want to do too oh, cool. that was also from way back in mm. the summer and then two other recent things that came out in the last few months like October, November but uh, we'll be getting to 2023 pretty soon in, in classical coming up no worries especially in February there's going to be a lot of new stuff okay. that I really want to hear and talk about so I think this happens at the beginning of the year, but there's a lot of things that have been announced have shown mm -hmm. up, but they're not available yet. So there's a, as I, we were talking, there's a new Mike Ledon recording and yeah. uh, some others that I know are coming out uh, later. So I wanted to get in some of these other ones uh, that uh, I heard right away that just gave me that, oh yeah, feel right away. So that's what I'm going to do for next right. week. So I think everyone will enjoy those. And if you want to know what they are shortly after this episode's published, uh, you can find a few hours later that podcast playlist. Uh, it'll be on Deezer and also there'll be a link to it on our Facebook page. So if you want to start listening early, you can check that out. Following uh, the end of our recording here, you'll get the uh, promos for those three podcasts I mentioned at the beginning of the episode. So stay to the end and listen to those and then follow the links if you want to hear that. And as always, thanks to Fast Signs of Staten Island for our glowing neon logo, the eye-catching clickbait that hopefully <laughs> gets some people to check us out on all the different podcast servers. And yeah, well, the second episode of 2023 already, and we've got next week all lined up. <laughs> We're getting things lined up uh, yeah. in faster fashion these days. So, Well, at the moment, yeah, we'll be able to do this until spring. And then yeah. you know, once, uh, you know, work kicks in again, we'll be... Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I guess. Really trying to keep up. <laughs> all right. Any final words to uh, close out the episode? Eh, I think we're all set. I'm just um, ready to start prepping for next week because I got to... We're going to finally do... This is another one I should have done earlier, but it, it took a lot of prep. The Vikinger Olafsson, oh, the pianist yeah. we really Double like. Mm. We're going to talk about him uh, next week. And uh, that album, the idea behind it is complex it's not hard but it's like it's there are a lot of, of trying right. to work it all out so like be able to describe it i thought today i'd get a chance to hear a bit of it and start like taking notes on it but just doing all the the prep work and this took hours right. so i just had to and you'll just we'll have to wait for next week to hear that hopefully i'll get to hear the album tomorrow it's going to be a long listen though i've listened to the first cd of that but it's going to take some listening time but it's going to be good because he's right. uh, one of our favorite pianists so He's one of our favorites, yeah. All right, we'll look forward to yeah, that. That's all I've got, really. Yeah. Mm. Cool. So this has been episode 97. We'll be back next week with 98, inching closer to 100 episodes. And we'll have a little right, coming uh, soon. celebration coming soon. So Yeah, we have our anniversary coming, too. Our yeah. second anniversary. Yeah, all coming it's up. February 15th would be the 15th, release date. Yeah. 11th yeah. would be the recording. Yeah. So we'll have to have another mountain lair celebration coming up soon we will at and, some point um, stay tuned for good things more Ranitsky coming next month as well 
Should be yeah. an exciting spring to work into. So we'll see you all again next week for episode 98. Gerald Albright, Rhea Schneider, Charlie Hunter, Luke Robillard, Sean Jones, Walter Beasley, Steve Swallow. Something Came From Baltimore is a jazz, blues, and R&B podcast and radio show, and it's not really about Baltimore. Subscribe to the podcast and listen to your favorite artist or future favorite artist that something came from Baltimore and be a part of that Be More music scene. Joe Lovano, Jeff Coffin, Paula Cole, Denuso Makatani, Ann Passio, Chess Smith, Thumbscrew, mostly. Hi, jazz fans. This is the founder and host of Neon Jazz, Joe Domino. It's both a weekly radio show and interviews with musicians from all over the world, like the Netherlands, New York City, and back to Kansas City, the home of Neon Jazz, covering the rich history and modern world of jazz in a fresh way, featuring interviews with the likes of Arturo Sandoval, Sonny Rollins, Maria Schneider, and countless others. Find our weekly show on Mixcloud. Subscribe to the interviews via iTunes and YouTube. We are Neon Jazz. Same difference. Two jazz fans, one jazz standard. A review of a single jazz standard through music, history, and stories. And this is AJ. And this is Johnny. If you are a jazz fan and you like jazz standards, bebop, show tunes, ballads, you name it. Yeah, we've got them here. We drop a new show on you every other week, and we take a standard, and we listen to a few different versions of it. Same difference. Come join the fun. Looking forward to seeing you.